0: People say, I can't imagine going through what you've been through. And, and I just tell them, yeah, you, neither could we. You can't imagine it and and feel the grace of God. You can't imagine. You don't get grace for imagining it. You get grace in it. You get grace in it. And grace isn't a storehouse thing that you can just stock up and it's like, oh, we got lots of backup grace if we need to go grab some off the shelf. It's 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 hand to mouth every day.
1: Hey guys, you're listening to The Glass House, hosted by Lifeway. We are Ben and Lindley Mandrell, and we have conversations with leaders who have experienced the stress of ministry and have sensed a spotlight on their personal lives. We want to encourage ministry families and provide a glimpse inside their glass house. Welcome to this episode of The Glass House, and we're talking today about sadness. Not a subject that people love to speak about, but we're Excited and thankful to have guests with us who really know this subject and can speak to us in intelligent ways about it. This is Eric and Katrina Reed, and they lead an amazing church outside of Nashville called Journey Church, and their story with their son, Caleb, is something that you'll want to listen to and learn from. We're excited today to have on The Glass House, Eric and Katrina Reed, who pastor an amazing church outside of Nashville. And... Today, we're talking about a tough subject of sadness. Uh, Lindley, as we've gone through the counseling process, we recognize that, you know, like for me, uh, Enneagram 7, sadness is something that I don't like to feel, I don't want to feel, I don't really want to talk about things that are sad, mm-hmm. and yet honoring loss is so important. We've walked through this now enough to know that as as many pastors have reached out as they've listened to the podcast, they, they recognize that they do have these emotions and they don't know what to do with them. And so... I can't imagine a couple that could walk us through it in a in a way that is, you've been very close to sadness. So Eric and uh, Katrina, tell us a little bit about you, your ministry, and then obviously with Caleb.
0: Yeah, so Eric and Katrina, we were born and raised in Lebanon, Tennessee. So I pastor, actually, in the town I grew up in, uh, other than a stor- short stand in the Army, gone for four years That's been home for us, and never thought I'd be a pastor, never thought—that was nowhere on the radar when we were, you know, dating. She wasn't like, here we are going towards ministry, you know. Uh, What actually happened was I was in the Army. She came to faith back home. Uh, We were dating during that time. She came to faith, and I was like, oh, that's cool, you know. Like, I went to church as a kid with my grandmother, too. Like, that's awesome. You know, I was like, I was encouraging her, like I was doing, you know, living my life for for Christ— and um, it was that was the beginning point, along with several other things that God really started to do in my life through a different circumstances and people, where I started to seek Him as well. I started reading the Bible, and so together, we both were making Jesus central. Uh, my desires for being a career military guy started to change. I wanted to be a family guy. I wanted to get married, have, a, have kids, settle down, raise that family. Didn't know what that meant I was going to do at that point, uh, because— you couldn't do that in the Army and just hang out in your hometown. <laughs> so, um, you know, I worked for a guy at our church when I got out of the Army, but it was over the next year and a half that I began to feel a call to ministry. My passion was just I want to teach people the Bible. I just want people to understand what my eyes have been open to understand now. And so I told her one day, I said, I feel like the, the Lord's calling me to ministry. And she's just like, whatever the Lord's leading <laughs> you to do, you know, she— Like we it wasn't like on some radar for us, and we had no idea what we were jumping into. But um, it's been great. Uh, A couple of years after um, I felt called to ministry, I would be working on planning a church in Lebanon, and that was the first church that wasn't a scary like curtains are closed on the windows kind of church plant. Right, (laughs) one that was actually like, no, you might actually come to this. Um, It was the first church plant in decades. And so we started the church in the summer of 2005, and it launched in 2006, and off we went.
1: Well, walk us through the season when ministry got hard, when life got hard, uh, when sadness became a big part of your life.
0: Yeah, so we were both in our church serving, um, heavily involved, when we found out we were having a baby, first child. We were 23 when she was carrying him. Uh, She turned 24 Caleb was born and I turned 24 a couple months later. And he was born premature, uh, 10 weeks early with um, essentially a bad kidney. He had a kidney with cyst all over it that needed to be removed. So when he was born, that was, you know, like here we are thrust into parenthood, but also in a hospital with a little two pound, 12 ounce kid that had issues. And we knew there needed to be a surgery. He started getting infections for a couple of months. We would They would try to treat him. They wanted to get bigger before they did the surgery, but it became a risk-reward situation. They needed to get the kidney out, and they thought it was better to go ahead and move toward that as opposed to waiting. And so what ended up happening was they removed his kidney, and we had the surgery. We felt like, okay, um, life should be normal now. In fact, that's what the doctors told us. He did. Everything at this point will be a normal life and we found out hours uh later um you know the next day that the bad kidney had been removed but the good kidney had been removed by accident now can you stop there how does
2: this happen yeah how
0: does this happen they explained that one it shouldn't ever happen but they explained that he had what would be called a horseshoe kidney which means his two kidneys were connected together Think of it by a piece of tissue, right? So they're connected together, and you got to think they're the size of thumbnails. They're he's a little bitty preemie. They're really tiny. They're connected together, and then they were folded onto one another. Which mm. means when the doctor and the surgeon went in and looked, he saw on on his view there a bad kidney without realizing that when that came out, what came out with it when he opened up. Oh. Was the good kidney also? Wow!
1: So there was some unique complications. Very
0: much so. It's super rare, and that became the running joke for us: is that if something is super rare, Caleb, Caleb is, is definitely going to—he's oh. going to be the one. So um, that thrust us into a, a whole new, a whole new arena that, quite frankly, neither one of us had ever been in, and I would say, theologically, we were not prepared for. Uh, up until. We had to work through forgiveness issues for quite a while. We were angry. We were bitter. You got to think, too, this this was—I mean, we were growing in our faith. Um, I was I was feeling called to ministry at this point in time. Um, I was actually, actually interning. I was interning at the church at this point, so I had already responded to a call to ministry. And so I'm not only trying to pick up the pieces theologically. Now, I mean, we're angry. We're bitter. We're hating. I mean, I was having dreams about hurting him. Mm-hmm. That's that's how deep it was. Mm. And the Lord began to bring conviction about that, to say, forgive as you've been forgiven. And that's not a flippant thing, And it, but it's also not an easy thing. Well, it's one
1: thing when somebody does something to you, but this is something someone did to your child. That's right. So there's that's a right. defensive
0: mechanism. that That's right. Protective. A protective. Oh, yeah. a protective. Protector. Yeah. And, and so we had to work through forgiveness and what does that look like? And how it begins vertically with understanding your own forgiveness and your own sin and His grace before you can look horizontally to forgive others. Yeah. And we had to really work through that. And I mean, the teaching to Jesus on forgiveness corner you; they corner you because He says, "Unless you forgive, as you've been forgiving," He tells the parable of the of the king and the servant who is forgiven a great debt, but then turns around and holds a lesser servant to to account for the debt he owes him. Jesus says the king puts the debt back on him. He says, this is what will be like for you if you don't forgive as your mm. Father in heaven has forgiven you. And you read that as somebody that knows you're not forgiving and going, oh, man, yeah, I don't like this passage at all. And yet we had to work through it. And so we did get to a place where we forgave him. But what we realized is that forgiveness is not a one-time thing. It's ongoing. You have to keep choosing to forgive because, I mean, it wouldn't take us five minutes of dwelling on what he did and the consequence and what it's cost our family to not be right back in bitterness again, just yeah. like that. Yep. So forgiveness is an ongoing choice. It's not a one-time choice. I would it's say, good. too,
3: just with, with every hospital admission. Oh, my goodness. Because we had a lot, And so it was just every time you're back, it all comes back mm. to Your mind the, goes the right reason back. why we're here.
0: As, as well well as are we here. as well as the financial burden mm-hmm. that you then had to carry. So we did end up seeing him um, a couple years after, and— This is after we had reached a place where we had forgiven him in our own hearts. Um, I ran into him. I literally had, I was carrying Caleb because he was there for dialysis. He was going for three hours a pop, multiple days a week. And as the elevator doors opened, the doctor was standing right there. I mean, I'm talking like a movie face to face. And we tried to do this little thing where we pretended like we didn't see each other to walk past each other, but we kept moving the same direction, which made it more awkward. And I finally just looked him in the eye and said, can I talk to you? And you could tell, like, he didn't know where this was going. And we stood up to the side of the elevator lobby right in the middle of the hospital. And I told him, I said, my family and I have come to a place where we forgive you. We forgive you. And that he broke down crying in the middle of the lobby. Well, that just goes to
1: show that he he really was bearing the emotions. He, was. he just was very poor at showing it.
0: He told me that day, he said, you have no idea how, how hard this has been for me. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we saw um, in a magazine a story about him as a missionary doctor helping to do, you know, urological mm-hmm. work on children who would never have that opportunity, and we're like— Wow! Ah, like <laughs> yeah. this was before we had we forgiven him. We don't want to like us, you. Like, we can't like this it, guy. It really you know? could be that he came in that day and just had to deliver the news quickly because he couldn't. He, he couldn't was bear it. he was broken. Right. He was broken. And so we saw redemption there. Yeah. And you know, forgiveness doesn't always equal reconciliation in every situation. But forgiveness is necessary on our part. It's good so that we're not held bondage by that. And um and and we were we had been mm-hmm. it was but that set us free. But forgiving him didn't change our circumstances. So we were still having to learn to live with our very sick son and a lot of uncertainty about our future. And that became the context for for ministry, period, for us. And it still is the context. So he was able to get a kidney transplant from Katrina when he was two. Oh, wow. Now, what's amazing about that is that he was not a match for with her when we first got tested. So we were both tested I was clearly not a match. He was not a match with her either. And so we were on the list. And when it was getting crunch time, he had run out of room for more catheters. And the doctors were like, we need to just retest everybody and see. Because he had been exposed to blood for dialysis. He was having to receive blood products to do that. And when they tested... Katrina, again, she came back as a match. Wow, what a praise for you guys. It yes. was unbelievable. It, and it was literally at the 11th hour.
3: It was a praise, and it was terrifying because that was my very first surgery. Yeah, so poor, poor Katrina, <laughs> poor Katrina
0: is in that tension of, I've got to help save my son's life, and yet I'm also terrified of a surgery. And so she went into surgery and gave him her kidney, and hit that kidney functioned to the very end yep. perfectly. Yep. We never had an issue with that kidney. Hmm. But from two to thirteen, I would say uh, that was the normal years. Even though, from the outside looking in, if you knew a story, there it was nothing normal about it. He was on medications constantly. He had regimens and routines he had to do. He had a feeding tube. He had a urostomy, which he peed from uh, into a pouch because he his bladder didn't work. He was he was on respiratory treatments every night. I mean, it was wow. when I say it was it was. And you call that normal? It was normal. It was normal because it became normal. It became normal, and uh, from the because his first two years were so hard, and his last two years were so hard. That was the most. He went to school. He played sports. He played video games with his buddies online. You
3: could not tell he was a really sick kid Mm -hmm. just by looking at him.
0: Yeah, he might be a a tad bit smaller than the rest of his friends.
3: Everybody else, but there's me at five foot. Yeah, yeah.
0: He didn't. He may have got that honestly. (laughs) from both, you're of not us. people of great size. We're not. We're not. Um, so we were. We were. You know, we were enjoying those years in the middle, even though they were hard to and there were hospitalizations and issues. At the end of the day, um, fall of 2017, he was 13 years old. Uh, he got something called fungal meningitis, and again, all of these things, his body is more prone to because he's on immune suppressing drugs. Yeah. So you and I could be exposed to it and your body would fight it off immediately. And we didn't know what was going on. We were in the hospital, they were testing, they were looking for things and he, he ended up going unconscious and having a stroke. And that, that I would say is when everything changed again. Wow. Uh, it was everything changed again. It was 2.0. And we were almost back to like what it felt like right after the kidneys were removed. Crisis,
1: just crisis. Right? Yeah. And what were you feeling at that time of just as a mom?
3: Just so much John, and it was really hard this time because we had two other children. Yeah. yeah. The first two years, it was us. We spent the night together at the hospital every time, But now we're having to do this whole, I take the kids to school, I come visit y'all, I go pick them up, we're home for the night. And Eric's like lived there for the last two years.
0: Yeah. I'd go home on the weekend to preach. She'd come up and be with him. And and here's the thing we we developed over the years what we would just called hospital mode we we just knew we were so used to it we just did it, but that changed everything. Fall. Follow-
1: in speaking today about the subject of sadness, I think it's important to recognize that sadness shows up in so many different forms. And for those of you who are listening, you're all dealing with sadness in some level. You know there are pastors that deal with sadness because they just miss pre-covid church and the, the joy of having a room full of people that was buzzing with energy and excitement and they just they honor that loss by being sad about it and there's other ways like family issues and others
2: i appreciate the way eric was even sensitive to that because even interviewing them we had to give the disclaimer and i'm sure anyone out there who has lost a child you hear this disclaimer all the time like i mean our sadness is not like your sadness because it's not and we we all know that but he was so gracious to say just because you haven't experienced the sadness that we have, does not mean that yours is not real.
0: Yeah, our measuring rod's a little bit different, probably than the average. Um, you know, I think I think we we probably do give grace uh, more um, than we judge. There's times where you roll your eyes. I mean, I see people complaining about life on Twitter, and I'm just like, you have no idea what you're you. You really right. don't know what suffering like. Is. You are, you know, you are a whiny baby. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but we also recognize too, and I tell people, we tell people this: what you're going through is what you're going through, and it's what it's the trial that God has put you in to trust Him with. Yeah. You're in a place where you're going to have to trust him with this. And and here's the deal, it may not be ours, and you could judge it and compare, it, but I could do we could do the same. We could look at the life of John Owen and say he lost 10 of his 12 children yeah. and say we don't know anything. It's true. And so it's like no, but our pain is our pain. Our trial has been our trial just like everyone else's theirs. And and that's what as Elizabeth, as Elizabeth Elliot said, that's what God has put in your hands to be faithful with. Mm. And so, whatever he puts in your hands, it could be the loss of a child, it could be, you know, a, a work problem, a relationship, marriage problem. You just go down the line. It's still the thing that's been in your hands, and it hurts, and it's it's real, and it's it doesn't actually change it to compare it to somebody else and say, well, I shouldn't complain. It's like, no, it's real. It's real. As we went into November of two thousand. 2019. Um he his respiratory his, his oxygen levels dropped and we went into the hospital with what we thought would be just like every other trip to the hospital.
3: Yeah, he he went in several times the last few years because he was unable to move his lungs, he wasn't able to clear the He didn't as much. have cystic
0: fibrosis, but his lungs acted like they had cystic fibrosis. It was a bizarre deal. He had something called um bron- bronchiectasis and um he had different things he dealt with respiratory-wise. But his oxygen went down. They admitted him, which would be normal routine for us. Started him on antibiotics. And the routine for 15 years is get in, get antibiotics, get better, go home. Go in, get antibiotics, get better, go home. And and that had become so ingrained. Um, he wasn't getting better. And I remember I was at the hospital for the morning rounds. She, she was with the girls. I'd just taken them to school, and I remember the doctor came and said, we need to start discussing the possibility of what happens if he doesn't start improving. And I'm like, what do you mean? First time
1: you've processed the fact that he's not going to turn around this time.
0: (sighs) For 15 years, we, we lived with a pretty sobering picture that we may lose him one day. It wasn't out of the realm. It was very much always simmering. But you don't ever know when or what might be the thing that does that. And it's in the hospital in this trip where all of a sudden the doctor even mentions that this could be a possibility.
2: Were you there together?
3: No. No. He called me, and I was like, I don't want to talk about it because I was out by myself. And I don't like to get bad news when I'm alone. For sure. So I guess I came the next day. Yeah. Possibly. Yep. And they did rounds and discussed it. So I heard it then and we asked questions and
0: it, it was the first time that we started to, to realize that this this may not end. On December 1st, that morning, um, rounds were made, conversations uh, happened, and they told us he's not going to get better. And Katrina and I talked and both just agreed we don't want him to hurt anymore. We don't want him to be in any more pain. Um, We don't want him to suffer anymore. And we went to the room. Um, I remember the girls. We waited for the girls to come up there, and they had been at church with family. And I walked the girls into the room with him, and uh, I walked them down the hall, and I told them the news. She was in the room with Caleb. I was outside the room, and I was just kneeling to the girls and telling them that Bubba's going to go be with Jesus today. And we cried in the hall, and we went in to see him and just loved on him. He was awake. Um, We asked him, we said, Caleb, do you want to see Jesus today? And we said, blink your eyes twice because you can't talk. And he just did two big old blinks to us. And he loved the Lord. And that's a whole other part of his story is he always knew that his life and his pain was a part of God's plan for him.
3: His favorite book is Job. His
0: favorite book of the Bible was Job. I would share his story at Fuge, still do, but he would go with me. Um, I'd bring him on stage and share his story and talk about faith, even when you're young. To cling to Christ even when you're young, because you don't have any guarantees of let's wait till I'm older. You need him now. And um and so we sat by his bed and rubbed his head and held his hand and um and watched him go be with the Lord and was surrounded by our family and we prayed and we sang and um and all of this, you know, we're doing very much In public and in front of our church. Let's talk about that for a
1: minute because it is the Glass House podcast and we're talking to people who are dealing with stuff as they're trying to minister to the flock. How did you guys continue to lead a church through all that? Walk us through that, like just your own emotions and how did the church receive that? I I can assume they were supportive.
2: Or even have the desire. I mean, I think that's for me, I just want to be like, I'm done and I'm, I got to. I got nothing. I got to go somewhere else and do something else.
0: Yeah. I think what made it possible for us to not be in that place, in that position, where, is how great our church has been through all of this. Our elders, our staff, our people, we're always just so supportive of whatever you need to do, you do what you need to do. If that means you're working from the hospital for the next month, you work from the hospital for that. If it means you're not working at all, and you don't need to preach. Don't preach. And it really was. It, they meant it. And at the same time, we were very transparent along all, all along the way with our with our church. We were very real about what we were going through. We were very real. I, I would talk about it in sermons. Um, I, I would say, in many ways, um, my time in ministry and our life with Caleb had paralleled the whole time, and so it. From the beginning, there was—I think, honestly, being Caleb's dad and being in our situation gave me a pastoral wisdom at 24 that I didn't have from life experience.
1: Let me tell you something about that. I was with a church recently that was looking for a pastor, and I was asking them, so what are you guys looking for? And this guy who's on the search team said something I've never heard before. He said, you know, we're really looking for a pastor who has suffered— because we realize that being a pastor is understanding suffering, and yeah. I can only imagine how uh, God used that experience to give you empathy for people
0: that said I, I I could be 27 and ministering to someone 67, but they believed and knew that I was having to cling to Christ in our lives. Yeah, and I think that's been a parallel all the way through. Um, we we've we've been honest about hurt and pain. We've kept them. You know, in the loop on what we're dealing with and what Caleb was going. Through. I mean, they were watching front seat. I mean, Caleb was a flesh and blood human being to them. They saw him. They, they, you know, they touched him. They hugged him. It's part of their family, church he, family. That's right. And so, um, so we never tried to, we never tried to keep kind of like the face on. Yeah, we just never did that. We were just always real. Um, I'd be real in sermons. I'd be real when 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 I couldn't preach. You know, it was just we were real. And, uh, and so to Lindley's point, did you guys have
1: to take any time away? Did you take a six months off? Did you do anything? Yeah, um, he was
3: typically on sabbatical every December anyways. Yeah. And then um, we had an extended was, time in January. Yeah. And then when
0: he had his when he had his stroke in October, they said, don't even think about coming back until after the year. And even then, take whatever time you need. Awesome. So from that point um, from that point on, it was whatever time you need. And I was in Atlanta with him for rehab. Um, our, our church was just fantastic with that.
2: Well, I have a question for you, Katrina, in that how long did it take you to come back? Because, I mean, it kind of goes into this question of sometimes people are afraid. Like they don't know what to say. Yeah. And so, I mean, i feel I feel like it probably was really hard for you to come back at any point because everyone that sees you knows what happened, but they, they're afraid to say, you know, how are you doing? Because they know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's that weird question of like.
0: That was the question for 15 years. How are you guys doing? How are you doing? You well, know? I mean, <laughs> I,
2: we're doing great. We're great. Yeah, like, what do you want us to say? Like, and so, I mean, at what point were you even able to come back and not have to, like,
3: almost eye dart everybody in the hallway? So I probably went back to wait to church the following Sunday. Huh. Mm-hmm. Wow,
0: you were often yeah. you would miss some um, during that two years. I'm
3: talking, after he passed, is that what you're asking? Yes, yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, we were my we whole were family there. went back the very next Sunday. Was it okay. helpful? It was. Oh yeah. Okay. I mean we cried.
0: Yeah. I mean we couldn't even stand in worship without squalling, but but that's okay. Well, what, what I want to say okay. about
1: this is with with all of the difficulty of be, of living in the glass house and all the challenges of being a pastor we don't talk enough about like just the support.
0: Yeah.
1: You know when a church is healthy, it, they're there for you, you're yeah. there for them. It goes both ways. Yeah. It's just inspiring to hear about how much your church loved you through that. It really is a testimony to well, the Well, and how of your fast
2: tr- you wanted to go back. Oh, I mean yeah. that you love they love you so well that you wanted to go
3: back.
1: Yeah. yeah. That quickly.
3: They actually planned the entire funeral. They did. They, they took care of all up, the details. Location, wow. everything. All we did was gather some pictures for them. They took care of all of it and they did a weekly drop off um, of gifts, random gifts, ranging from like crafts for the girls to do to gift cards for food for a year, uh, for a whole entire year after that. And so they were amazing. And I just know I didn't want to sit at home and just yeah. become depressed and just dwell on it. So to be there, to be able to worship and imagining Caleb worshiping with us at yeah. the same time.
2: it was really special the way katrina said the very week after caleb's passing she felt comfortable going back to church because my question to her was just you know you're you're kind of the elephant in the room because everybody knows what has happened and people whether we like it or not feel awkward they don't know what to say because like we talked about with them you you sometimes just naturally say how are you and then you feel silly because you know how they are they're just in horrible pain and, um, and so I thought it was so special that she felt the desire to go back. But I do recognize out that some of you listening may not have that same story because not every church is the same. And there are some churches that can feel toxic that when we lead them. And so, you know, if you are someone who would not feel that same freedom to go back in there that quickly, I think I just would recommend finding, you know, we talk about this safe space type or safe place type people. I mean maybe you have a few really close friends or someone in the church that you really trust that could maybe come get your children, your other kids, like if they if you want them to go to church and they still maybe don't have a greater understanding of what is really going on and still want to be at their, you know, in their preschool or in their children's, you know, maybe you could find someone that you could just be completely like gut wrenching honest and say, I cannot go and I may not be able to go for six months but would you help me? Would you come help me get my kids ready? Would you help me take them to church and, and bring them home? And, you know, you may even say, would you pick up lunch on the way home for us at wherever? I mean, so just find those people, if at all possible, that can just really be your, your just family.
1: In 20 years of leading people, I've learned this about grief. There is no one-size-fits-all. There just is no formula. What, what is good for one person is not good for the next person, and so in some settings, uh, it helps to get back into community, into fellowship, and others. Some time of withdrawal is healthy. I can say this. I, I don't have a frame of reference for what they've experienced, but we've resigned to churches and stayed for X number of weeks after we resigned. Mm-hmm. Those periods for me were so draining because you're having the same conversation, and it's a sad conversation over and over and over. So for example, in our last church, we stayed, I think, what, five weeks? Seven weeks?
2: No, it's three.
1: Three weeks. Felt like seven weeks.
2: It <laughs> to, did to, to you. But once everybody
1: knows you're leaving, there's only one conversation you have with every yes. person is, you know, we're sad you're leaving. So I can understand why somebody in the state of grief would want to pull back and withdraw because it's just so hard in the heart because you are the one having to steward that conversation over and over mm-hmm. and over again. So I just think it's important to give people freedom who are listening, who are experiencing grief and sadness and feeling like they need to express it in ways that is appropriate for them.
2: Mm-hmm. Talk about your younger two girls because, I mean, you know, I think as I'm processing this, it'd be really hard for them to understand the goodness of God being mm-hmm. younger and that He took their bro- big brother. Though I'm sure yeah. they I'm sure they adored him.
3: Yeah, and they, so, and Caleb, the oldest, the twelve-year-old. Yep. They're so much alike. She's been loving Jesus, I mean, it seems like her whole life Yeah. hard. She loves to read her Bible. She loves worship. I mean, her and Caleb are so much alike. Very much. And um, so it was harder for her.
0: Yeah, because she was older. Yeah. She could understand it.
3: Kyra was like three or four when he got sick, so she probably doesn't even remember him talking, really. Yeah. So all she's known is Bub in a wheelchair. Yeah. yeah. So...
0: And we've made it a habit, I mean, this is, and this is part of it, is as we were thrown into his suffering at the beginning, we had to start learning, how do we see God in the midst of suffering? How do we understand life as a Christian and suffering? We didn't have a theology of suffering when it happened. We did. It wasn't a biblical one. And so we had to start constructing the pieces together of a worldview that would help us to walk out life with a ton of uncertainty. And as we did that, we shared that. Like we we raised Caleb to understand this is why your 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 body's like this, but let me tell you the bigger picture of what God is doing in your life. And Kaylee and Kyra have heard that same story. So in family worship and devotions and just our our just daily life conversations, understanding suffering and pain and death and loss is something that they know about that i never knew about at their age. I mean, they literally stood bedside and held their brother's hand as he passed away. So this is gonna be formative no matter what for them.
1: I'm guessing that you guys are now part of a club you never wanted to be a part of, which is people who have lost a child, and there's probably pastors and wives that have reached out, who've walked through this, who need help. What words have you given to them I'm thinking about our listeners right now maybe somebody who's walking through this very thing picked this episode because they're walking through this what do what you learned over the years that's been like some healing medication
0: like what are you telling folks yeah
3: our motto is one day at a time literally
0: yeah with so much uncertainty about the future you know Caleb's health we had no control we could do everything perfectly in terms of caring for him and we had no control over his future and what that does is it forces a dependence on God every day. Um, literally
1: when, 24 hours. Like literally. All we can think about is from tonight, from this morning till tonight.
0: Well, you know, people, um, people say, I can't imagine going through what you've been through. And, and I just tell them, yeah, you, neither could we. You can't imagine it and and feel the grace of God. You can't imagine. You don't get grace for imagining it. You get grace in it. You get grace in it, and grace isn't a storehouse thing that you can just stock up, and it's like, oh, we got lots of backup grace if we need to go grab some off the shelf. It's, it's, it's hand-to-mouth every day, and so what we tell people is don't get too far over your skis thinking about all the what-ifs, all the—just deal with today. Just trust God today. Um, lean on Him today. I, I think cultivating fellowship with God is huge um, for navigating trials. You also have to know the character of God, and, and you know I wrote a book called Uncommon Trust talking about trusting the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Trusting in the Lord is really, really good Christian cliché advice. How do you do it? And that's what we had to start working through, is what does it mean to trust God with this situation?
1: There's an old saying, God cannot use a man greatly until He wounds him deeply and i do think that just listening to these two of you talk i can only imagine how god's used you through this to minister to so many people and thanks for talking about it thanks for being willing to talk about it i know this probably wasn't your favorite appointment of the month to have to come and talk about this but it's so helpful i think to pastors and wives who are walking through grief to know i'm not alone
0: yeah no they're not alone they're not alone well
1: we have two questions that we love to ask all of our guests uh because our listeners are living inside the glass house, and the first one is just what is the greatest challenge that you have found of being a pastor and pastor's wife, living in the glass house where your life is being lived before
0: public view? I'll speak for me. I don't know if she would say something different, but I think for me, I don't see it as a job to perform. I see the relationships that we have as personal. And so I think the hardest thing for me— is when people walk away without talking to you without telling you why they're leaving people that you've invested in people we've had live with us we've had an open we've got an open door policy like we literally have people live with us 24/7 when i say we live our our suffering out in public it's like we we have people live with us all the time we our home is always open. We live in the middle of the town. People stop by, they don't knock, they walk in, and we like that. We mm-hmm. we really like that. That's our that's our personality. But when you when you see people as friends and not just like, oh, you're our church members, and then out of nowhere, without warning or word, they leave. It hurts me a lot. And and so I think that's been the toughest thing for me. I don't I don't get hurt very easy. I got pretty thick skin. But that's the one thing that can get underneath there pretty quick is, man, I thought we were like for real friends, not like church friends, you know, (laughs) like I thought we were not playing that game. And so that hurts.
3: I would just say I've met some women that are like, oh, you're Katrina. I don't ever see you. And um, my first ministry for me is my family. So I'm going to do my kids, take care of my kids first. And then, you know, I don't have to lead women's ministry. I don't have to teach Sunday school. All those things. So they think if they don't see me everywhere they are, that I'm just not there. Yeah. Do you so, feel
1: pressure in that moment to be more seen? I don't. You're like, I'm Our over old that. pastor's
3: wife told us, and she didn't even know I was going to be a pastor's wife at the time. Neither did I. But she was like, I don't have to do everything here like to be a good pastor's wife. I mm-hmm. support him and raise our kids to love the Lord. And
0: and I've just never put that on her. Right. I, I I don't care if somebody else's expectation of her is that. What I want her to do is to love the Lord, to love her church, and to do what she feels like the Lord's calling her yeah. to do, which is to care for the faith. And where she wants to be involved, great. But she'll never get pressure for me to say you need to go do this because you're supposed to. Just that's just going to make her resent the church at the end of the day.
2: So our last question is: What has been the greatest blessing of living in the la- in the glass house? And we I, we alluded to that a little bit of just how it's been like family to you. But what what would be your actual answer?
0: We love We love the people that we get to do life with. Um, you know, I never anticipated being a pastor, and I'm sure the Lord could call me somewhere else, um, but our, our prayer has been, Lord, if you would be pleased to keep us right here for the rest of our lives, we would be content to do that. We love these people. The hardest thing about uh, ever going anywhere else would be that would be that we love these people. Um, and so they're a joy our folks they're a blessing to pastor they're not they're not a burden at all um and that that would be my answer
3: i would say the same just the people and the relationships and the support and love that we've had it's just they're like a true family they're a family yeah
0: yeah they're our family
2: The Glass House is a production of Lifeway Christian Resources. It's hosted by Ben and Lindley Mandrell, executive produced by Joy Allman, produced and edited by Angie Elkins, original music by Robert Elkins, and graphic design by Cameron Spooner.
1: Thanks for listening to The Glass House, where we hope to shed light on the dark places of ministry, one conversation at a time.